the Guardian. So we are gathered here today to discuss the impending death of iTunes. Mm-hmm. I imagine Danielle is going to play funeral music under this. Are we being a bit dramatic? <laughs> it's not going to die. It's going to be reborn as a beautiful trinity of, of apps. So, yes, we are being a little dramatic. But it is fair to say that the iTunes that we know and love, or hate, is destined to change radically sometime in the next few months. So it's being split. The core of the app is probably going to stay much the same. What it is, is it's taking an app which once did the work of about 10 apps and spitting them out so it only does the work of about five. It remains to be seen whether or not there are die-hard fans of iTunes out there who will crumble at the loss, but there is something to be said for taking issue with such a drastic change. Suddenly you don't feel like you are a valued user, you feel increasingly like you are, well, the, the product, that you are having these changes foisted upon you. And it's that much worse for a web app where you don't even have the option of not downloading the change. It's just you load up a website one day and it's a new website. And who better to talk about this sense of software grief than The Guardian's UK tech editor, Alex Hearn. It reminds me of a line from the stand-up comic Dimitri Martin, who uh, said, uh, I love digital cameras. They enable instant nostalgia. You just take a picture and then, oh, look, it's us. God, we were so young 10 seconds ago. <laughs> I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week we say goodbye to iTunes. Kind of. And take a nostalgic trip down memory lane for other software we've lost in the past. This is Chips With Everything. Everyone's enthusiastic about this launch. You won't find many independent record labels signed up to iTunes. They say so far the deal just isn't good enough. With legal action threatened against internet pirates, 79p a track is an attractive offer and Apple are cashing in. One group we probably shouldn't expect to shed tears at the closure of iTunes is the music recording industry. Throughout the 80s and 90s, the industry was transformed not because it wanted to be, but because technology was forcing its hand. Moving from analogue to digital allowed music lovers to listen to their favourite tunes without necessarily needing to buy a CD or album. The first version of iTunes was released in 2001, and two years later Apple launched the iTunes Store, with the hope that customers would be so impressed with how much music was on offer that they would be willing to start paying for something that they had learned how to download illegally for free. The promise was that it was a music manager for the rest of us, that it would herald a new era of listening to songs on your computer, which in 2003 was still a a fairly novel thing. It was sort of the first big mainstream support for this idea of listening to song files. The the whole idea of ripping CDs w- was fairly new. Computers were not devices that were commonly used for listening to music. And so collections of audio files had a sort of 
vaguely seedy subculture tone to them. iTunes was kind of the first big attempt to create a legitimate alternative. Firstly, to make it very, very easy to put a CD in, rip it and have files from that. And secondly, and then a few years down the line, to create a way of buying music, downloadable music online. Before iTunes, none of that existed. It worked. It grew. And now, 16 years later, Apple is shutting down the store. But this isn't a snap decision. There have been rumours of a rewrite for a good couple of years now. It's one of those things that's that's been very obviously coming just because iTunes is huge, lots of people use it, and yet development on it clearly stopped. It's never exactly got better. It's kind of only ever got worse, but it has at least changed in recent years. And for the last couple of years, it stopped even doing that. Mm. It, it sort of had very much stagnated. And Apple often leaves things to stagnate and then just quietly kills them. iTunes is too big to be quietly killed. So that stagnation strongly suggested that Apple was working on something else. And we got the official confirmation of that at their Worldwide Developers Conference in June this year, when they announced the death of iTunes. It was two years of record label negotiations leading up to the launch of Spotify. And, uh, and, and you know, it, we were never quite sure exactly when it was going to close. There's all this speculation that Spotify was going to launch. And then uh, all of a sudden, in a matter of about seven days, all those label negotiations concluded. And we realized the deals are done. We've got to launch. Some have suggested that the rise of the audio streaming service Spotify was a big factor in Apple's decision to do away with the iTunes store. What Spotify did was it forced Apple to add a whole extra tier into iTunes, an app which was already bursting at the seams with features that it wasn't originally designed to do. You know, you have to remember, this this is an app that was created to basically do two things. Play music and store a collection of music files. Then it also got a music store. Then it started managing iPods. Then it got an app store and started managing iPhones. Also, you had podcasts, you had TV shows, you had films. All of these were crammed into an app that still had the same fundamental visual design language, still had the same code base as it always had done, and just wasn't working to do all of these things. Spotify came along and meant that there had to be another feature added, music streaming, which even insofar as managing the contents of an iPhone are pretty different from managing a music library. They are still limited collections of content. Streaming music means that you suddenly have to have a system for all content ever (laughs) being streamed through this same service. Apple did that. Apple Music and the uh, rebranded music app on phones managed to chug along, but it, it was clear that it wasn't really fit for purpose. As you alluded to earlier on, iTunes isn't going to exactly die, but what is going to happen? So it's being split. For all that I've been dissing on iTunes and promising a worthy successor, actually, the core of the app is probably going to stay much the same, and that has its upsides and its downsides. The music app, which will be the main successor to most of iTunes, will still be where you play downloaded music. It will still be where you play streaming music from Apple Music. It will still be where if you have a computer with a CD drive, which I don't think Apple even sell anymore, uh, (laughs) it would be where you would play a CD on that. 
But then there'll be a few other extra apps uh, that will handle other parts of what iTunes once did. There's a podcast app, which depending on how far behind you are on your listening, you might even be listening to this through it right now. It <laughs> will be a centerpiece on the Mac for downloading, managing and listening to podcasts. Another part will be the new TV app where uh, you will watch downloaded films and TV shows. You'll interact with Apple's TV Plus service and you will buy if you buy or rent films from the iTunes movie store. They'll all go there. Then a few other features will be scattered throughout apps where they uh, hadn't previously had much of a presence. So the Finder, which in Macs is the way that you browse through files, uh, is where you'll be syncing with your iPhone. Oh, and, I know that. Yeah, and the Books app uh, will also be where you manage your downloaded audiobooks if you download audiobooks from the iTunes store. What it is is it's taking an app which once did the work of about 10 apps and spitting them out so it only does the work of about five. Is any part of this to do with the fact that iTunes is quite a retro name when you think <laughs> of it? Like, if you, you know, nowadays, mm -hmm. right? So like music, podcasts, that's what apps now are called. They're very kind of basic, minimalist things. Mm. iTunes seems kind of adorably retro. In a way, it is. Uh, there was a big push from Apple in 2013 to stop using the i prefix and switch to apple you saw it i think the first big release was the apple watch but then we've seen it since with sort of apple music with the apple airpods all of these things which once upon a time probably would have been the i music or perhaps itunes streaming so that, that that's the root of it is uh by the time apple came to launching its streaming music service it, it had dropped i and was on apple music and then those changes slowly ricochet back up the chain until you end up with a, a music app is there a worry that we're going to lose something with this change? In a very literal sense, yes, there is that worry. A lot of people are very concerned that they have heard stories about iTunes dying and they are panicking about their years-long, lovingly curated 100-gigabyte collection of downloaded music. <laughs> so, no, we're not going to lose anything there. This is reassuring. You know, if, if that is your fear, I can reassure you, your music library should stay the same. I think more generally, though, they're... There might be a worry if iTunes had been a lovingly cared for piece of software until now. If iTunes in particular had been given the corporate oversight that a piece of software that widely used needed and deserved, then I could see why people might be sad, might be resenting the fact that they'd have to use five apps where previously they only had to use one. In actual fact, though, I, I don't think there was anyone who loved iTunes. <laughs> um, it was showing its age and it was showing the, the need for a big rewrite long before this was announced. And, and these days, it's got to come as a relief to most people, right? Now, we've previously had Alex on the show to talk about his nostalgia for technology of the past. So I was intrigued to know whether he felt glum at the prospect of losing the iTunes store of yesteryear. I am very nostalgic about iTunes pre-Apple Music. I, I was a very late uh, adopter of, of Spotify and of streaming music. For my own personal reasons, I had a very strong moral opposition to downloading music. I, I bought CDs long after a bunch of my friends had become, you know, all piracy all the time. <laughs> And that kind of carried on to Spotify. I didn't really have an opposition to Spotify in any moral sense, but I enjoyed the rhythm of buying a new album rarely, 
of kind of having just 12 new songs to listen to that month and focusing on them. And I, I enjoyed what that did to my music listening. Then Apple Music came in and in the process, something went wrong in iTunes and my database got screwed up and all of my playlists were ruined and I had duplicate tracks everywhere. And I, I, I sat down and I kind of did stare at this uh, 60 gigabyte music library and just go, am I, am I really going to fix this? <laughs> I'm not, am I? And I switched to Spotify that, that week and never looked back. After the break, plenty more nostalgia for the platforms and apps that iTunes will join in the tech graveyard. You can have things that you love change, things that you love die, and things that are fairly recent also be seven or eight radical versions away of it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Chips with Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, The Guardian's UK tech editor, Alex Hearn, joins me in the studio to discuss iTunes and its impending death. Well, as we keep saying, kind of. It's basically being split into three new apps, music, podcasts, and TV. But the iTunes store as we know it is going away sometime this autumn. In the first half, we looked at iTunes, and you said that you felt a bit nostalgic for pre-Apple Music mm, iTunes. For what it once was. <laughs> and that got me thinking, are there any other apps that you have been sad to see go? Uh, yeah, there are. I mean, this idea of software that is built and that you either pay for or download once and it does its thing and mm. it doesn't need to connect to the net and it's not software as a service, it's just a thing. But that said, the single biggest thing that I'm most uh, nostalgic for is, is none of that. It is Google Reader. Oh, me too. <laughs> oh, I miss Google Reader. So Google Reader was Google's RSS reader. RSS is, but sort of was, a file format that let blogs and other sites on the net communicate updates. The idea was that you would sign up to an, an RSS reader, download the RSS feeds of, of blogs you read and sites you read regularly, and be able to read every update to them was the underpinning of the, the blogging culture that grew up in the uh, sort of late noughties. And Google Reader was the most successful RSS reader in, in the, the second half of that period. And really useful to people like us, journalists. Yes, and the problem was that kind of only useful to journalists like us. It had a dedicated, diehard, but ultimately quite niche user base. And as the narrative goes, essentially social media killed it. The rise of Facebook and Twitter meant that if you were someone who wanted to stay connected with the news, it was easier and more fun to do that on social media. Even though you had less control of that, the counterweight to that was that you had far more chances for serendipity, far more chances for conversation, far more chances for a, a culture and community to grow up out of it. Particularly on Twitter, the early days of Twitter felt more vibrant than the dying days of Google Reader. Mm. So Google killed it. For what it's worth, RSS is not actually dead. It underpins podcasting. 
<laughs> the last great survival of blogging culture is podcasting. There is no centralized authority. It uses this decentralized technology to spread files and to update podcatchers about when a new podcast is published. It's great. I wonder if all the problems that we have right now with fake news and things that seem to come from the fact that people get their news from social media wouldn't be as much of a problem if we still had Google Reader. I, I do think there is a very interesting sort of alternative history of the internet where Google looked at the niche popularity of Google Reader and rather than declaring that the niche popularity was not enough, declared that Google Reader would be the basis of its attempts to compete with Facebook and Twitter because there was actually already a burgeoning social network on that platform. Uh, you had the ability to share posts to people who could follow you on Google Reader. Not that many people used it, but for those who did, it was it, it was a social network. And it was a social network built around sort of vaguely long form commenting on news articles rather than in those days, 140 characters. I think the information ecosystem would be better had that happened, but it, it didn't happen. It's sad. The thing is, software doesn't actually have to disappear for people to feel chagrined. Sometimes an update is enough to cause pain. Google Maps is a really good example of that, where the difference between Google Maps now and Google Maps of 10 years ago is, is quite enormous. The software, well, software, the, the web app has taken on a huge number of extra features. It has degraded in performance isn't quite the right word, but it needs a lot more computing power to do what it did 10 years ago. Mm. It's changed in much the same way as iTunes had. And I think if you compared the app of 10 years ago to the, the web app now, it might not be clear which was better, or at least it would be a lot clearer which changes had made it harder to use or, or which things that you liked had been deprioritized. A good example, for instance, is the Google Maps of today doesn't really have the satellite view that it used to. It has a 3D terrain view, but it prioritizes that over plain flat satellite imagery, which, particularly if you're on a, a low-powered computer, doesn't mm. work great. Similarly, it, uh, it deprioritizes sort of the drag-and-drop street view, which a lot of people used to use religiously. It's in some ways slicker and when it works well it works better but it degrades really gracelessly when you open google maps it doesn't assume that you're there to look at a map anymore it assumes that you're there to find a restaurant nearby mm -hmm. or to uh, look for a hotel in a foreign country or perhaps to you know get it to chart directions in a car between two places it gets in the way if you know what you're there for the flip side is if, if you don't really know how to use it, it, it's much better. And that kind of dumbing down, I guess, of, of technology is, is something that if you're nostalgic for anything over about a decade old, that's probably what you'd point to. Do you think that the reason people sometimes get annoyed over updates to apps is because often these updates happen without any announcement, just very suddenly? It's announcement. And I think it's also it, it's consent. It's people like to feel consulted, like to have the option of saying, no. And again, this is a, a difference between what used to happen to software 10 or 15 years ago and now. Even if it is a downloaded application on a computer, if, particularly if it's a smartphone app, it will probably have automatically up 
updated and the first you'll know about it is yeah when you open the new app and it's new that's brought huge improvements in a number of areas particularly in security the ability to automatically patch a security vulnerability has changed the landscape and made it much much harder for for criminals to to do what they would do but the flip side is suddenly you don't feel like you are a valued user you feel increasingly like you are well the the product that mm. you are having these changes foisted upon you and it's that much worse for a web app where you don't even have the option of not downloading the change it's just you load up a website one day and it's a new website one of the things that holds across a lot of technology is people like to feel like they are consulted like they're involved and if they don't they they react badly Rarely does a conversation between Alex and me manage to avoid the topic of video games. I recently got a new iPhone, which will be better for some new games, but as you update iOS, some older games fall behind. So the, the, the reason behind this is um, Apple announced, I think they first announced it two years ago, but they, they have finally pulled the trigger on removing any game that hasn't been updated mm. to support a 64-bit processor. It's fine and good in the long term it means that your phone will run slower running a 32-bit app on a 64-bit phone can actually slow down a lot of stuff not just the app that's run the downside is it means that applications that haven't been updated and, and rebuilt don't work anymore and for games particularly older games which were sold on a pay once and download forever model you know mm. the, the, the days of the 399 game without microtransactions there's very little reason for a developer to update them and it, it's a problem i think in the long term i hope that there will be a move towards sort of accepting really old iphone games as, as retro games as retro classics and there are a couple of publishers who have already started looking at this they are going around buying up the rights to very old games repackaging them for the new devices and selling them afresh and that will be good but in the meantime, we're going to sort of lose some classics there. Are there signs that the demise of iTunes is part of a larger cull of applications and software that we've grown used to and maybe even grown to love? Or will this kind of thing just continue to happen periodically without much fanfare? So on the Mac in particular, there is an, another trend to this that I think is, is the most important sign. This is part of Apple unifying the way iOS apps and Mac apps are developed. Apps like the podcast app are basically the same as the iPad version of the podcast app. It is Apple's attempt to take these rarely used Mac apps and these more used iOS apps and make it so that only one team has to work on them going mm. forward. That will be good in the, in the short term for particularly desktop apps that have a small user base. They'll be able to piggyback on the much larger user base of, of the phone versions and and this is great so we'll see i think in the short term actually a big increase in the amount of apps that we get on the mac platform but and there is a but that is going to be countering a much longer trend and the longer trend is basically for web development the longer trend is for most apps to be a website in a fancy wrapper or to just not be an app at all and to be a website because it's just easier if you need to make an Android version and an iOS version and a web version and perhaps a desktop version as well to actually just make one website and be done with it. That's the trend that I think is going to really start eating away at things like iTunes. And iTunes itself was already a victim of that trend. The iTunes Music Store, the iTunes Movie Store, the App Store, 
they are all just websites. It was lovely as always to have Alex on the show. There'll be a link to his article on the death of iTunes on the Guardian website. But for now, I'm off to reminisce the countless technologies I forgot I missed while recording this episode. MSN Messenger, flip phones, Tamagotchi, Vine. Rest in peace. Chips is produced by Danielle Stevens. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.